0: All right. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Great to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm in trouble already. Okay. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, I got to tell you before I get going, we arrived here uh, Wednesday and it has been... A whirlwind this is absolutely unbelievable and if you can just have this point of view it's overwhelming how incredible incredible and sober everyone looks how's that for God and how about sobriety man? <clears throat> someone on the elevator. One of us asked me, hey, are you nervous about speaking tonight? It's absolutely not. I got off the elevator and walked into a wall. I mean, you know, it was pretty humbling. Um, I want to thank the committee uh, for, this, for this great honor to be here and share on our, our 88th uh, happy birthday Alcoholics Anonymous to be a part of this so I'm thrilled to be here with my wife and uh, so thank you for that. I also want to thank uh, our dear friends Jerry and Melissa, you guys are rock stars, um, uh, your commitment and love for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm humbled by it and I thank you for your friendship and to be a part of this and I thank all of you for being here. June 23rd, 1988 is when a loving God separated me from alcohol. I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety. I'm very grateful for, thank you. I'm very grateful to be a member of Good Standing on most days and to be able to uphold our traditions as well as the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. To pack into the stream of life and pass this message on for fun and for free. To be able to get to do things like this, it's beyond my wildest dreams. So I'm very grateful to be a a member of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new, or perhaps you're not, and you haven't experienced the sacredness of Alcoholics Anonymous, my prayer tonight to you would be this, that you were able to stick around, get so involved in Alcoholics Anonymous that you would experience the sacredness of these rooms, where we get to see lies reborn and resurrected for fun and free in Alcoholics Anonymous, where I get to shout God from the rooftops and talk about the great things that God has done for a wretch like me. And for this, I'm very, very grateful. The longer I'm sober, God puts things on your heart and the truth is true until we discover a new truth. And there's many things God reveals as we move along in this journey. And one of the things God has put on my heart several years ago has become incredibly important to me is that what this life is about, not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, life in general is truly about relationships. How am I doing in my relationships? Am I cleaning up the old scrapes? Am I offering a handshake? Am I offering an olive branch where maybe there was something going on? Am I packing into the stream of life? Am I doing what God would want me to do? The way people did for me? Because there's no guarantee that I'm going to be here tomorrow. There's no guarantee any of us will be here tomorrow. And even though I say I love you and thank you for being there, you don't need to reciprocate. I've done my part. But I never want to put my head on the pillow and wake up the next morning and find out that someone's missing. Or I'm about to take my last breath and find out I should have offered an olive branch to someone. It's how God would want it for me. This thing that we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, my experiences showed that sobriety is just so fragile. I don't care how sober we are and how spiritually fit we are, it is so fragile. And my illness just wants to lean on it, just push the envelope a little bit. And quickly I'm gone. This life that God gives me, I'm going to be 64 in July, thank you God. It's so fragile. Now if you're new, you may not get that. But as you get older, you realize how fragile life is. It hangs from a thread. Like my sobriety, I really need to do everything. Not just to even get God's help, but get God and complete. I need the all of God so I can see the all of God in everything. I don't want to miss this, however long God's going to keep me here. So I'm very grateful for the path he's put me on. And sometimes it's not a popular path. Sometimes you'll be criticized for it. It's really okay. Because my job as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is not only to pass this message on and stay sober, but it's to please my God. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous... I would hear the elders in AA, the old timers, including my sponsor. And they would tell me how sobriety is a number one priority. Sobriety is a number one priority. Sobriety is a number one priority. And of course it is. And I would always say that. But as I said a moment ago, the truth is true until we discover a new truth. Now, sobriety is a priority to me. But for me, currently, it's having conscious contact with God. That's my number one priority. Having conscious contact with God, not unconscious contact with God. It seems to be when I'm having conscious contact with God, I'm awake with God, when I'm working with God, when I'm doing all the things I get to do, I'm not picking up a drink. In fact, not only I'm not picking up a drink, but all the things that accompany alcohols have seemed to go dormant for a little while. Not perfect, but dormant. Because my alcoholism will go underground and resurface in other areas. They're called sex sprees and food sprees and money sprees and gambling sprees. And it goes on and on and on. And when I'm having conscious contact with God, it doesn't seem to be that way. That's my job. It allows me to stay sober. It allows me to have the endurance and the passion to pass this message on for fun and for free. And that's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous, for fun and for free. June 23rd, 1988, God separates me from alcohol, and my separation from alcohol uh, was a violent one, like I'm sure a lot in the room, a lot of you folks in the room. It wasn't a thing I just signed up for one day, I'm going to go to AA and change my life, I have nothing else to do. But it was a violent separation in the back of an abandoned building hallway in an area in New York City called Alphabet City. And they called it Alphabet City because the a Avenue A, B, C, and D, and it was a really sordid spot. You had the winos, you had the junkies, and a crack scene hit. It was messy down there. And that's where I was running for for a long time. The only folks who lived there couldn't afford to get out. The rest were people like me. I had been through six treatment centers up until this point. I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous drunk. I would come in drunk, stand in the back of the room, and if it was a go-around, I'd raise my hand and critique everyone in the room. And they would say, keep coming back. They would give me a phone number, keep coming back. Before we had cell phones, newcomers, we actually had to dial and call somebody, and they would give you their number on a piece of paper. That's my only exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous into six treatment centers, and I gave up on AA. I was convinced that this was a cult. My religion didn't work. I'm a cradle Catholic. I went there, I couldn't stay sober. By the time 1988 came around, I was never an atheist, but I despised God. In fact, back then, if you were a man and worshiped God, were a religious man or a spiritual man, I looked at you as weak and cowardly. My belief system told me that religion, God, was for women and children, not men. Men got to do what they have to do. Because God wasn't working in my life. Look at the condition of it. And so I roamed through the streets in 1980. I was homeless for, for a long time. And I took up residency at back of an abandoned building on, in Alphabet City, and I would come out of this hallway to hustle up money, get a pint of whiskey, and go back. And that was my existence. I was one of those homeless bums on the street. You know, bathing was no more, ha- not happening anymore. Eating was not happening anymore. Back then, I weighed 130 pounds. I'm running around with hepatitis C. I'm urinating blood, and I'm dying of alcoholism. Until June 23rd, 1988, showed up and it's unbelievable how in my weakest moment i find god's strength when it seems to be the most darkest i find god's light and i can't plan when that happens but what happened to me on that day that the desper- desperation was so great it screamed louder than the ego for a brief moment there was a vacuum the ego got crushed for a brief moment where god's light can shine in i didn't even know this was happening But I remember this one particular morning, I got up off the floor because I'm starting to vibrate and I'm really sick because I need a drink. It wasn't about, I think I'll drink today, I won't drink today. I needed a drink just to breathe. And I got up off the floor and I collapsed, as if someone hit me from behind my knees and my knees buckled and on the floor. I went. And then it began to change. See, our big book says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps. I'll get this personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. But it actually gets ignited. The journey actually gets ignited when we're in that place of, oh my God, I need help now. Options are gone. Hooks to hold on to are gone. We're in that place. It's way beyond self-pity. It's not even that. I like to call it divine intervention, where I'm hanging at the edge of a cliff and there's nowhere else to call but God. And I'm laying on this floor and out of nowhere, I begin to weep uncontrollably. I could not stop crying. I don't know where this was coming from. And it was as if my life passed before me. How did I get here? How did I get to be a homeless bum living in the back of an abandoned building? And I need to drink just to breathe. I need a drink. What do I do? And I had this thought, if I get a drink, I'm going to die. And if I don't get a drink, I'm going to die. What do I do? The only place I can think of was begging God for help. The same guy had despised, mocked, loathed, gossiped about, and slandered. But in that place, it was the only way to turn. And I says, please, these are my exact words. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. And I've been rocketed. See, when I was in that place, I wasn't thinking, okay, I need to go to detox, then I need to go to treatment, then I'll go to AA, make 90 meetings, 90 days, get a sponsor, do the steps, and be Moses on day 91. And tell all the old-timers you got it wrong because I'm here There was nothing And we live life forward and understand that backwards I look back and I'm so grateful for that that I wasn't figuring out what I need to do because that's called me running the show again and the only thing my experience proves is when I get behind the wheel it gets ugly. I Always get drunk my alcoholism gets a life by taking mine. That's what it does. Over and over and over again, it convinces me to buy the line. I wind up hitting a wall. And it was devouring me, my alcoholism. And it wasn't just the drinking. And what, what, what was going on in my head was awful. I just want to die. I don't want to die. I want to die. I don't want to die. I've given up hope on everything. And I beg this God, please take me from this. I don't want to die. My dad who kept me alive long enough with God's power to get here, was in a town called Atlantic City, New Jersey with his wife. And around 2 or 2.30 in the morning, my dad's going to be us 86, bless his heart, and when he tells that story, he still weeps about it. He was in Atlantic City, New Jersey, spending some time with his wife, gambling and watching shows and just having some getaway time, and we hadn't seen each other for a while, years. It was a long time. We lost contact. At around 2 or 2 30 in the morning, my dad gets awakened out of a sleep and gets started getting dressed, and his wife wanted to know where he was going. And he said to her something like, I need to find my son Peter. And she says, We haven't seen him forever. He's I know, but I don't know where I'm gonna go, but I know I need to find him. It was God calling, connecting the dots, yeah? And my dad trekked from Atlantic City, New Jersey to the lower east side of Manhattan. That's about a four hour drive. Not knowing where he was going, just depending on this calling to find me. Later on that day, late afternoon, my dad finds me standing on a street corner. I'm tore up from the floor up at this point. I'm dying. I have no idea, I can't even fathom what it's like to find your firstborn standing on a street corner. I come from an, an Italian Catholic American family. I'm the first male born. I was supposed to be Pope or President. And I'm standing on the street corner my dad drives up and he gets out of the car and he just called my name. And the very first thing that comes out of this alcoholic mind, alcoholic mouth from this alcoholic mind is this. Dad, I'm okay. I'm fine. Not, hey, how's it going? You got 20 bucks for me? My dad walked across the street and when he got to me, our roots began to grass new so I collapsed. I just fell into his arms. I went limp, and I never forget this. I hope I never forget it. My dad put his hands under my arms and held me up, literally held me up. There was nothing left. It was over. And he kept repeating something over and over and over again. It was this, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son to this. Like a mantra, he kept saying it. He wasn't a God guy back then. He is now. And I remember, as silly as it sounds, I was 28 years old, but I, and he and I never got along. But in that moment, I remember feeling, I'm going to be okay. I'm protected by this guy. My dad's going to keep me safe. Maybe I won't feel the pain I've been feeling for so long. I, suffering can finally stop. I can't take it anymore. I hurt so bad. I don't know where to go. And I got placed in my seven treatment center. I never ever want to feel that kind of desperation please God again. I never want to feel dirty not physically dirty but on the inside dirty like that again. Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed not only me and my dad to walk a new path but allowed me to keep head up and shoulder square even in the most difficult times knowing that I know who's walking beside me all the time. Why do I need to be afraid? Not when I know God's walking with me and he's walking with you as well. And I was placed in my seven treatment center. To tell you how I got there and what I'm trying to be like today. I will tell you, I do have a sponsor. His name is Bob Azam from St. Paul, Minnesota. I do have a home group. It's called Alcoholics and God's Sin Group at Marion Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I sponsor about a dozen men. I love serving Alcoholics Anonymous is my life. I'm not the best member of AA. I'm certainly not the worst. But I just want to be a spoke in a very big wheel and let God be the wheel. I chop wood, carry water, and let God do what God has got to do with my life. And so far, so good. <clears throat> 14 years old, I grew up in uh, a town called Brooklyn, New York, and the only requirement for membership there is a pinky ring, sunglasses, and gold jewelry, by the way. Yeah, we had guys there who thought The Godfather was an educational movie, but that's another meeting. Um, yeah. They changed how it works in the how you doing? Um, <laughs> But I I was born in 59, so I remember the the 60s. Now we had problems in the country, we had some serious stuff going on, pardon me. But there was something cool about the 60s. It was before disco and MTV ruined everything. We We had music, music and hippies. We had soul music, Motown and rock and roll. It was a cool time. And what we did back in Brooklyn, back in the days, was hang out on street corners and schoolyards. And the older guys are drinking cold 45 beer. To be guys and girls hanging out in the summertime with schools out. 30, 40 people hanging out in the corner with the, with the little transistor radio listening to rock and Motown. We go from the Doors or the Beatles to the Temptations in one minute. It was, it was wonderful. And I was watching these guys have a good time, rough house and flirting with the girls. And it seemed to be really cool. I wanted what they had to offer. But what was going inside of me was completely different. As a kid, God gave me some gifts, and as a kid, he uh, gave me the gift of music. I was, I was, you know, the kid in my neighborhood who was gonna make it out via music. I was able to play drums, I got into percussion and jazz. I was able to play piano, I played saxophone. I was the type of kid, give me an instrument in a week and I'll learn it, I, I don't know how that happened, but it was that guy. And it was great hope for me, great expectations, I was gonna make it out via music. And no matter how many accolades I would get for music, I still felt something wrong inside. And I'll be really transparent with you. uh, Around ages 8 to 10, someone I refer to as a distant relative, uh, this man was doing things uh, to me in the basement of my house that he should have been locked up for. And he, and he, and he would scare me and warn me and threaten me if I told anybody what was going on. So I'm walking around with this. And around 14 years old, January 1974, my mom, who was full-blown alcoholic, bless her heart, and addicted to narcotics and had some mental health issues. Uh, After about 20 sanitarium visits, she took her life uh, in 1974. She tried taking her life a whole bunch of times. And in January, January 23rd, 1974, I woke up to a horror show. My dad's an alpha male, a tough guy. If anyone's ever seen the movie um, uh, uh, Goodfellas, that Robert De Niro guy is my dad. I never saw him afraid of anything. I never saw him cry. He was a tough, tough guy. And on this cold winter morning, I remember my dad wailing and crying on the phone, send somebody, I think my wife is dead. And I was literally frozen in my bunk bed. I couldn't move. I I can't believe this is actually happening. And my life changed. And it wasn't a conscious decision, but something went on inside of me that I knew this God thing was make-believe my mom would teach me how to pray told me all things are possible with god god loves us and i'm watching her get sick and sicker and sicker and then she takes her life and i knew this god thing was make-believe and i think at that point it was kind of like me against the world and god is for women not men and i was cast into the sea of self-reliance and it didn't work out at all and one summer night the guys are hanging out on the street corner drinking cold 45 beer and I'm walking around with all this stuff inside of me, I, I, fear-based, insecure, no matter where I was there, no matter where I went, there I was, and I, I just, I couldn't be okay. The amount of shame I walked around with that my mom committed suicide, totally self-centered about it. I would tell people my mom died of cancer because in my mind, they would say, oh, poor guy. Well, if I told him she committed suicide, I would look bad. And when I walk into a classroom, I knew everyone was mumbling. That's the kid whose mom committed suicide. That's not why I'm an alcoholic, but that's my point of view on life. I was always looking at life from the mind, hearing from the mind, seeing from the mind, speaking from the mind. Always wrong. My mind is a predator. It's a four-letter word. It's never giving me the truth, ever. Ever. What Alcoholics Anonymous allows me to live out of the soul, because that's always right. See through the soul, speak through the soul, operate out of the soul. And this one night I decide to pick up a quart of beer, and I begin to drink a cold 45 beer, and halfway through, a quart of beer. I'm embarrassed to tell you, I'm feeling wonderful. Absolutely, I got taller and better looking. Every girl in the corner really wanted me. Why are you laughing for? I was a cross between Dirty Harry meets Snoop Dogg. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And uh, I love the effect produced by it. That gnawing pain that I couldn't wrap my head around at 14 of mom committing suicide. This fear of my dad. What this other man was doing to me. It was all removed for a while. The music got better. My corner was the hub of the universe. It was a great thing. And by the time I finished that quarter beer, I feel drunk. I know I'm drunk. This is what they're talking about. I was numb, comfortably numb. I love the effect produced by it. I had no idea I stepped onto a road paved right to hell called alcoholism. I had no idea that when I drink alcohol, the cravings intensified. It's never satisfied. Who knows about a mental obsession or spiritual malady at 14 years old? Just give me more. And for years, I got stuck in the more I got stuck on more I remember turning around to go home and I didn't want to go home I don't want to look at my dad I don't want to go back to that house where my mom died but the big thing was I never want this to end and there's no way I'm walking into school on Monday morning sober I never want to be sober again I want this I tasted the honey tonight it's got to last forever I love it I just want more, IV it, I want it all. And I chase that elusive feeling to what many of us have done in this room tonight. Jails, institutions, and knocked on death's door. And I didn't see it coming. I can't see my alcoholism coming. You can. And it's always pursuing me. But because of Alcoholics Anonymous, a loving God in this big book, God is in pursuit of me today. Go on any length to have a relationship with me using people, places, and things to get my attention, to get right with me, this great God. The following Saturday, I got drunk, and that was going on Saturdays. It progressed into Friday and Saturday. You know the story. I'm drinking all the time, and I walk right into a whole bunch of consequences. My younger brothers who idolized me start to become afraid of me. They had no idea what was going to happen to me when I drank alcohol. My dad would read me the riot act and threaten me, and all these kinds of things. And never, I never paid attention to any of it. I was in pursuit of the thing, this panacea that fixes me all the time. Yeah, this mind of mine walked into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988 when I got sober at 28 years old. I was still the 14-year-old kid whose fear-based, insecure, selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, only now I'm sober at 28. I walk into the meetings like that and I need help and I don't know what to do. I needed the spiritual transformation. I was getting a lot of information, but I was lacking this transformation and I'm scared all over again. Around 18 or 19, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, and I started to take a lot of things that didn't belong to me, and I started to steal from my family. And I would start to steal from my dad's checkbook. I would forge his name and go down to the local store. They cashed the check for me and give me 20 bucks, and I'd walk out with beer. And one morning, I decided to steal it, uh, 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 something that didn't belong to me. I stole from my dad's uh, pocket money and I walked out the door and I was starting to wonder what's going on with this guy. He's never home. Those checks I cashed, I didn't know anything about something called checking statements. <laughs> I thought you cashed a check and they vanished into space and no one ever knows. And my dad got something in the mail called a checking statement. I remember calling home on a payphone. And my kid brother said, bro, the old man's looking for it. What'd you do now? I know what I did. And I was actually appalled that my dad would be annoyed at me for stealing a couple of hundred dollars. What is the big deal? He has plenty. My alcoholism point of view would not allow me to see I just stole from a family member, my dad. Doesn't let me see that. He's got plenty. What's a few hundred dollars? My alcoholism has no shame my alcoholism has no integrity my alcoholism has no grace it doesn't care it doesn't care about me it doesn't care about you it doesn't care about children it doesn't care about husbands and wives it doesn't care wants me dead will settle for me drunk and is going to any lengths to do that I couldn't see it back then because I'm in the middle of this thing called alcoholism it made me deaf dumb and blind to reality there was no God in my life And I made my first treatment center. I was sitting in a car with a young lady I met the night before, so alcoholic, I'm love and stalking at the same time. (laughs) And I thought I was all that, a player, and I'm sitting in a car, and in Brooklyn you had to roll the seats all the way back. And the windows all the way down and the music all the way up. I got the Walmart jewelry on, you know, and I think I'm a player and she's sitting next to me and I think I'm really smooth and the old man drives up, jumps out of the car, screams my name and this is how I handle it. Honey, that's my dad. You talk to him. I'm running away. And my dad caught me and I blamed her. I blamed the guys in the neighborhood, I blamed mom's passing and all this stuff and that's how I got into my first treatment center. I was nowhere near conceding to my innermost self. I'm an alcoholic. I did 28 or 38, 30 days in treatment. I was discharged and drunk in an hour. I called that girl up and says, come meet me, honey, I'm coming home. Like I was in a federal prison or something. There were tennis courts on this place. Yeah. And I says, bring a jug and I've got to go to this thing called AA and I took a few pops and never made the AA meeting. It's unbelievable how my alcoholism, I never picked up the first drink drunk. I was only sober on the first drink. And I pick up the first drink because I wanted it, and suddenly the second drink, I needed more than the first one. And the third one was already on its way, and I don't care about anything anymore. Just how am I going to get more alcohol? And I went on another drunk, and I made my second treatment etc. And I made my third treatment center, fourth treatment center, somewhere in there. I get a job as a longshoreman. I was a dock worker in South Brooklyn. And I brought my alcoholism, all my shenanigans into this industry. And my family was part of that. They had all these impeccable reputations till they hired me. It was a job where we were probably the most powerful union in the country, at least one of them. It was a job that you could never, ever get fired from. If someone on the East Coast gets fired, there'd be a wildcat strike all the way to California, work stoppage. The whole country would shut down. You cannot get fired from this job. You with me? cannot get fired from this job. I got fired from that job. (laughs) And there was no work stoppage. My dad said, "Japhia, don't come back," and that was it. I was bringing shame and embarrassment to people. I was like, alcoholism in a drive-by. Anybody near me, I was affecting them. I was infecting them. And my reply was, "Leave me alone. It's my life. Why are you bothering me?" I went into my fifth treatment center. and I always get moved to talk about this because my experience, and I speak for myself, I'm not a model or an example for any AA. I'm just telling you my truth. But for me, there had to be a point where I had to go beyond conceding to my innermost self. I had to, if you will, come face to face with my own demons. And I go into this fifth treatment center. He says, you, 30 days is not going to work for you. We need to hold on to you a lot longer. And they kept me in this impatient lockdown treatment center. You know you're in trouble when your side of the doorknob doorway has no doorknob. That's not a good sign. So I'm in there for nine weeks, and what am I doing? I'm eating, I'm bathing, I'm going to the fitness center, I'm going to these groups, I'm identifying my feelings, and my issues, and my triggers, I'm doing all of this stuff. I'm like the poster child for treatment at this point, and after nine weeks, they say, we need to discharge you. We can't hold you anymore. And I'm like, I know what I need to do, I'm good to go. It was a Saturday morning, they discharged me. I leave this nice little cocoon, and I hit the fresh air, and I get slapped with reality. Ideas, attitudes, and emotions were driving me. Agendas and itineraries driving me. Fear driving me. You know all those voices, the ones we walk around with? We're in the car, we think we're driving it alone. There's 45 other people in that car with us. And we're arguing and debating. And then you walk into me and say, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. <laughs> I mean, my voice is like this. I sit on the couch. I, mean, I live in South Florida's paradise for me. I look out the window, there's palm trees. Palm trees are good, the grass is good, the ocean's good, the weather's good, the car's good, the relationship's good, the money's good, the health is good. This is good. And then my mind says, "Uh, how old are you now? And I realize there's a lot more road behind me than in front of me and suddenly I gotta go snorkeling, camping, hiking, fishing now. I have to make a lot of money now and I go from bliss to anger in 20 seconds. That's how my mind works. It was no different back then. I had no money, I had no girlfriend, I had no job, so what do you do? You call home. I called my dad He reluctantly said, Come home, put yourself in a cab, I'll square it with the cab drive when you get home. And I went home, and when I got to my house, my brothers had that look. You know that look the family gives us when we show up? You know that look? What's he doing here? The last time I was there, I robbed everything. I robbed jewelry and money and things like that. By now there were boom boxes. Remember the boom boxes? I took those and saw everything. I wouldn't let me in. And here's what happened to me. I'm physically sober at this point. After nine weeks of being in treatment, I get to my dad's house Saturday and Sunday. I cannot sleep, I cannot talk, I cannot engage with anyone. I'm crawling out of my skin because my mind says, we need a drink just to take the edge off. Need a drink, need something in this body right now just to settle my nerves and just to chill a little bit. I need a drink. My dad's remedy for everything, including COVID, was pasta. I had to get out of there. There was no one to talk to. And on Monday morning, I snuck out of the house early. I took a car that didn't belong to me and I headed to the other side of town. I headed to South Brooklyn. And I drove up to the slicker store that I would frequent uh, often, except everything was closed. And I got out of the car and I'm pacing up and down on the sidewalk. Have you ever had the obsession so powerful that it begins to feel physical? That your body hurts all over again. There's nothing wrong with my body. The mind is screaming, we need a drink. And I'm starting to feel like the belly's hurting, the clammy hands, the sweaty forehead. I'm starting to feel anxious and really restless. I need a drink. And I waited for the liquor store to open. I went and I got a pint of whiskey. pint of whiskey. My plan was to drink and drive to my dad's house. Except when I got the pint of whiskey, I had to drink it right there. And when I finished the pint of whiskey, I felt better. Except here's what. I never made it to the car. I had to go back into the liquor store and get a second pint of whiskey. I had to, because I was stuck in more again. The craving was on. And I went on one of the worst drunks ever. Quite frankly, if it wasn't for my dad's money and some of his connections, they would have probably put me away for a while. You get arrested enough and appear before a judge, say, okay, you need to be taken away. I got arrested a couple of times and got into a whole lot of trouble. It was one of the worst drunks I was on. I landed my sixth treatment center and I walked out after 36 hours and I need to talk about this. This is where alcoholism takes me. I had the realization, the aha moment going through this detox. I'm killing my family. Up until then, they were a blank. I didn't care about them. At this moment, in the short 36 hours, I realize how much damage I'm doing to my father, how much damage I'm doing to my brothers. I'm better off if I die because I'm never going to get sober. When we get to that place, it's awful. I'm never going to get out from under. I'm never getting sober. This is just going to linger in torment. Why don't I just die? And I walked out after 36 hours, and those people, those hardworking people, in those sentences, please don't do this. Don't leave. I walked out AMA, and I found myself in some flea bag motel in Staten Island, New York. And some woman took me in, and she was a barmaid. It was a motel in a bar, one of those swanky joints. And she took me in, and I just laid her all day and drank. And one night she finished her shift, and I went to steal the money out of her purse. And what I found was a bottle of pills. And I ate the, as many as were in there. And I got back into bed and waited to die. I welcomed the idea. I cursed myself for being a weakling. When Bill talks about the courage to do battle was not there, he doesn't say the courage to go out and get drunk and have a good time. Battle, it was battle, it was war, and I was worn out. I can't do it anymore. I just want to go away. I want to close my eyes and never wake up. When my mom committed suicide, the belief system my dad and my family members would say was, mom committed suicide because she's a woman. Men are stronger. Men don't do that. The Marinelli men are strong. So I thought suicide was a gender issue growing up. And here I am laying in bed, going out the same way my mom did, a whole bunch of pills, a whole bunch of whiskey, and doesn't wake up. And I had this grief moment of telling myself, this has nothing to do with gender. This is alcoholism. This is that place of depression, that bit of morass of self-duty. I never get out of run or die. That's what my alcoholism takes me to. I don't like that guy. And God interrupted my death. And I got, I got back on the streets again. I've never been in the streets before. I don't know how it is to do the streets. I'm not a fighter, I'm not, I'm not a stick-up guy, I'm not a violent guy, I'm not that guy. How do you survive on the streets? I remember the first time I panhandled. I thought a SWAT team was gonna jump out of a truck for me panhandling. I was humiliated. The hundredth time I panhandled is what I do. The first time I stole, I said, oh my God, I'm going to get caught. The hundredth time I stole, it's what I do. It's called surviving on the street. I was in the game. I can't get out. I remember trying to walk up the block and my body was so beat up. If I, if I live to be a hundred, I'll never be as a day I walked in here. But I was holding onto to the railing of fences to keep myself from just collapsing. I was so beat up. My body hurt. And I'm walking around with these uh, construction boots and the right boot is missing up front. I have these blood-stained soil pants on. It was June in New York and so it gets hot up there and I got this, this turtleneck and this jacket and I'm cold and sweating at the same time. I'm going through withdrawal and I don't even know it. I can't get sober. I can't die. I can't get drunk anymore. I'm drinking just to stay level. Why God are you doing this to me for? Who have I hurt so bad that you're punishing me and that's how I was looking at this. Until June 23rd, 1988 showed up and I was living in this hallway. I didn't even know it was the month of June, let alone the, uh, June 23rd. I got taken to another treatment center. And you know those people in there are so happy to see you. Today's June 23rd, the first day of the rest of your life. Aren't you happy? Not really. <laughs> I want to die, kill somebody. I don't know what I want to do. But somewhere it got deposited back here. Today it's more important than my belly button birthday. And I was put on this new course, this new direction, this new path in sobriety called Alcoholics Anonymous. After about 10 days of being in his treatment center, he sent me out to Minnesota. I was supposed to do more treatment and live out there. And I came in touch while I was out there with some folks called uh, a meeting called the Three Legacies meeting in Minneapolis. It was a Friday night meeting around 300 people, all suited up. I was intimidated and attracted to them at the same point because I would stand in the back of the room. By now I'm wearing my brother's clothes. I had no clothes and they were too tight and they were old, and I was embarrassed to move up front. But I'd stand in the back of the wall, and I knew at this point, I need to be on your team. This is the last house on the block. How do I do it? How are these people traveling so light? Why are they smiling? I want to smile like that. I want to feel clean. I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to drink anymore. But what are they talking about? I didn't even know what the steps were after seven treatment centers, let alone traditions. I didn't even know who Bill and Bob was after seven treatment centers. I am clueless. What are you guys doing? Please, someone tell me. I'll tell you what some of these men did. You know, when you walk into me and you're new, you try to front like you've been around for a while, and the guy says, you're new, come with me, and the cover's blown. There was a guy, Chuck Rice, out there, and he would, took me around, and he told some of his sponsees, and what they would do is they would drive on a Friday night from Minneapolis all the way to a town called Hastings, Minnesota, to scoot me up, It was to get in the car days they would been meeting in the car before the meeting and meeting in the car after the meeting. And they'd scoop me up about an hour drive, come get me, take me to the meeting. And they'd take me home. Now some of these guys were sober in my mind forever, five years. When you're counting days, five years is there's going to be a statue made for you soon. And one night they went to the diner, because we always like to go to diners after a meeting. Sometimes the diner is better than the meeting. And I'm in panic mode. I said, I have no money. I got lint in my pockets. They're going to a diner. This is my ride. What do I do? And I remember this guy, Kip, said something to me that resonated so deeply because it was very much a New York expression. And he said, it's okay, you're with us now. I grew up hearing that. It's okay, you're with us now. they gave me a little bit of dignity because I was feeling so awful about myself. And they took me to the diner and they fed me up and they gave me a little something to go home with. And I remember one night, I know this sounds terribly silly, but one night this guy Kip gave me one of those AA coins with Bill and Bob, you know, one day at a time, something like that. And I, I thought I was getting like the Academy Award for being the best AA member or something. And I got back to my sober house that night And I put it on my little nightstand and I made my prayers and I got back into bed. End of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I put my head on the pillow and I took a deep breath and then the voices started. Who are you kidding? These people are Minnesota folks. You're from Brooklyn. You're a loser. You never went to college. Who are you kidding? They're doing this for a long time. You don't even have six months yet. Who are you kidding? This is another scam. You don't have a job. You don't have a girlfriend. You don't have a wife. You don't have kids yet. And it's getting louder and louder and louder. And I know I'm walking out the door and I made a prayer to God. Please, God, don't let me walk out the door because I know I'm not coming back. And what I did was I got out of bed and I got that coin and I tucked it under my pillow. And I prayed like my life depended on it. God, please don't make me walk out the door. If you have AA angels, please send them because I'm going. And I woke up the next morning in that bed, sober. And I haven't left AA since. The power of God. When our book talks about the age of miracles are still with it, our own recovery proves that. I just need to go to a meeting and look to my left and look to my right. I don't care if you're in the steps right now. I don't care if you know anything about traditions and concepts. You're here. You're sober. You're alive breathing. Marion always says, where there's, there's breath, there's hope. You're here. God's working. God's working. This whole thing, for me, this whole thing in Alcoholic Psalms, and I speak for myself, this whole thing, whether I'm making coffee, I'm greeting, I'm a DCM, GSR, no matter where I am on the service structure, if I'm just sponsoring people, if I'm chairing a meeting, they are all vehicles to get my hand in God's hand and shout the good news to the guy or woman walking in the door. We have an answer for your problem. Come all the way in, as my friend Ralph White says, and sit all the way down. After about a year, I was brought home from Minnesota. It was unbelievable. Uh, I got on the phone with my dad, and he says, I spoke to the place that you're in. Do you want to come home? And I says, Dad, I'd love to come home, but this was, I can't believe I'm, I, I said, I kind of like you to have a job. I have a sponsor. You have a group here. I kind of like it out here. He's okay, stay. And a couple of months later, I went home. I started to really suddenly miss my family, miss being around my dad who I never wanted to be around, miss being around my kid brothers, I wanted to be a big brother for them. And they invited me home. And I walked into my first home group, it was all called the Free Spirit Group, in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. We had names like Joey Bag of Donuts and Frankie Head of Lettuce and they were all wonderful guys. I can tell you a quick story about this crew that God put me with. They decided to go fishing one day, one summer day. They'd never been fishing before. They said, we're gonna go fishing. So how did five guys from Brooklyn, Bensonhurst Brooklyn, get dressed to go fishing? Like I am tonight. (laughs) We're out on a boat a couple of hours and nobody knows what they're doing. And this guy, we call them Sally Boy, Sal Pacino, Sally Pleats. Depending on what neighborhood he was in, he had to change his name. And he has this fish on on the line, and he brings it on board, and it hits the deck, and it's flipping and flapping all over the place. So what do these guys start doing with this fish? They start throwing punches at it and kicking it. And Sally Boy gets the fish and goes to stick his head under the water, and I says, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to drown him. I'm sorry to report to you. That's a true story. (laughs) How I'm here tonight, the age of miracles are still with us. They weren't all big bookers. My first sponsor was really hardcore, very, very structured, very, very rigid with the book. And God put him in my life, and I'm very grateful for him. But they were great 12-steppers, all of them. It was back in the day where they'd watch the door, not because we didn't have cell phones, yeah? So they'd watch the door, and someone would come in, they'd circle up you're coming with us tomorrow, we're going to meet. I learned how to do a lot of that 12-step stuff from them. They were great at it. And I got the sponsor, began going through the work and things started to change from my point of view, started to change with me. I quickly realized I had to ask myself a question every now and again, "Am am I worshiping and serving God or the part of me that thinks it's God? Because the longer I'm sober, this illness gets sharper and suddenly my thought life is creating my current reality and I'm wondering how come I'm jammed up again? I got to get as far away from this head, from this mind as possible because it does two things before and later on, before and later on, before and later on, all day long. It's never in the present moment. That's the only place God is. I got to experience that because of the lessons you guys gave me, the sponsors gave me. God is very contagious, this light that we're able to walk in. We don't have to say much. We don't have to do much. Just we kind of get to walk in a light that says everything. And the things we do are more on point. They're more loving, more caring, more passionate, more understanding, more forgiving. I'm not trying to fit in and do the right thing and say the right thing. It's who we become. We become this book. We become an example of God. Our book says we're agents. I didn't say that. The book says we're agents. We represent Him wherever we go. Him, her, it, whatever you want to call it. But we're walking light. We walk into a room and someone says, i got to sit next to that person. I had a grand sponsor, Don Pritz. He would walk in a room. i got to get with that guy. I don't know why. There's something about him. I was with another guy, uh, Gary Brown, last weekend. I mean, he just he walks in. i got to get with him. They don't say anything. It's just the light that we all get to walk in. And because of that, my brothers found Al-Anon. My brothers found Coda. My brothers found church. My brothers found therapy. And they're finding their way. That family that was ripped apart because of alcoholism, that owned me and was owning them, little by slow has been put back together. We still, you know, we, we walk and it's crooked sometimes and it's, we stumble along and sometimes it's messy, but we're shoulder to shoulder. And that guy I called Dad, who he and I never got along, he's like my best friend in the world. He's gotten older. He's been very, very sick. We almost lost him a few months ago. This six foot one, 230 pound guy was down to 115 pounds. And Mary and I would go, and my brother would go to see him. I'll never forget one day I was in there. He was sitting in a wheelchair, and he was embarrassed to be in a wheelchair. It was killing him. But he wanted to get out of the wheelchair and get in bed. He didn't want to call the order again. And in a very sheepish way, he says, Peter, can you just help me get into bed? And I lifted down into the wheelchair and put my, arms under, my hands under his arms and held them up the same way he did for me on June 23rd, 1988. And... There was a moment I knew this is exactly where God wants me to be, right here, nowhere else. I got my dad into the bed, and I was joking around. I wasn't going to make him feel self-conscious, and we goofed off a little bit, and he made a couple of jokes, and I kind of tucked him in, and I left. And so I, my dad calls me, I call him and it's sometimes he forgets what he's saying and sometimes he repeats what he's saying, but I just, it's all okay. My job is to be a son and a brother and a husband and a friend. This is what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me besides God removing the drink. He gave me all of you to grow up and be a man with a little bit of dignity. And hopefully, hopefully a little bit of humility. And to walk with a forgiving spirit. I don't care what you did. Even if you don't like me, it's really okay. Who's perfect? I'll extend my hand to you. Because I need you as much as you need me. I'm speaking tonight. You're listening. Tomorrow someone else is going to speak, and I'll be listening. It's reciprocal. My sponsor calls it pitching and catching. There's no pecking order. Thank God. We're just members among members, and I like it that way. I started working with prayer and meditation. I just want to share this quick story with you. When I, I, I was drinking, I was blind drunk one night. I wasn't in the blackout, and I didn't pass. I was in a blind drunk, and I remember having this crying, Jack. I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and I'm arguing and screaming at God with the bottle in my hand. I never got to say goodbye to my mom. You ripped me off with a lot of earthy language. And I remember negotiating with God, if you bring my mom back right now, I will stop the drinking. I never got the hug. You ripped me off. Well, that didn't happen. A few years later, I get sober. My sponsor gets me into working the steps immediately and starts showing me how to do prayer and meditation. I start working meditation. Now, there's probably some fancy language for this, but I know that for me, there's three parts to this meditation. One, I know I'm meditating. Okay, I'm done. And every once in a while, right in the middle, you get taken someplace. I'm sitting in this meditation, nine years into sobriety, and for nine years in sobriety, for some reason, I get moved, I get called, I get prompted to go to my religious community and light two candles. I did it faithfully every single week, light two candles, one for my mom, and one for the sick and suffering in other rooms. Why, I don't know. Once a week, I go there. I don't know where mom is. They told me about this place called heaven. I haven't been there, I don't know what this is like. It's not on the map, I don't know where she is. It was a riddle, it haunted me. Lighting candles, sick and suffering my mom. Every single week, nine years into this, one morning I'm meditating and I get taken somewhere. I find myself on a beach. I'm sitting on a beach, Lord knows I love being by the beach. I love watching the waves, I feel free, I feel safe. I watch God show off. And suddenly out of nowhere in this meditation appears my God and the carpenter's is walking towards me. And literally out of his chest in this meditation appears my mom. My sponsor said that, showing oneness with our Creator. And my mom gets in front of me and she kneels down on one knee. I'm about eight years old now in this meditation. And she hugs me. And I say this to the men in this room. When you're eight and you have a bad day and mama hugs you, you're gold. There's nothing like that in the world. And she stood up, and I became an adult male, a man, and she held on to me again. And I remember watching her in this meditation. She's weeping, but they were joyful tears, not sorrowful ones. And my God is on my left. He puts his hand over my shoulder. Without saying a word, we go eye to eye. I can't even come up with the right adjective to express love, abundance. Without saying a word, he says, she's okay, she's with me. And then my mom pointed off to the horizon this way and pointed at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flickering lights and pointed this way at hundreds and hundreds of flickering lights. She held on to me once more. Her and my God walked away. They became one, and I came out of meditation. I don't know how long till this day I was in this meditation, but I was weeping. I didn't even know it. And I was exhausted. So you call your sponsor. Sponsor. And I called my sponsor. I said to him, this is what just happened in meditation. And I said to him, my mom was pointing at these flickering lights. I don't get the lights. And he said to me like a good sponsor would, who was really in the work. He says, Peter, haven't you been lighting candles for your mom for about nine years? I says, yes. He says, she let you know she got them. She got them. And at that point, I know I'm known by my creator. a shift that we all get. Sometimes it's not so dramatic. Sometimes it's very dramatic. There's a shift that happens. i heard enough of your stories over the years. Something happens and we start thinking and feeling different. This God really knows me. He really cares about me. And that's what happens. I've never been the same. Here's the great thing about God. He keeps delivering things like that. In fact, God's given it all the time. I just, sometimes looking in the wrong room, sometimes I'm listening to my own thinking, which is not a good idea, but God's always feeding. And sometimes I just need to practice pause and operate out of the pause, take a deep breath. God, what do you want? And then go before I just go. This family of mine has been reassembled. I have wonderful, wonderful, wonderful friends. I have one of my heroes speaking Sunday morning, Bill C. from California. How does this happen? How do you get involved in this? How does this happen to my life? I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, the Sacred Rooms. The only thing God wants from me is my soul. And I gave him my soul. And he's given me a life. Yeah? I've given him my life and he's given me Purpose. I've given him my sinfulness over and over and over again and my brokenness, and he continues to give me forgiveness. I've given him my drunkenness, and he's given me sobriety. And I give him my sobriety, he continues to give me the sacred rooms called Alcoholics Anonymous. I walk into a room, I say, my name is Peter, I'm an alcoholic, and they say, come all the way in and sit all the way down. Welcome. And I'll close with this. I think I'm out of time, so I'm gonna close with this. This is from a book, has nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous, but it speaks to the soul. And for me, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, may I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. That's us. That's my Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm grateful to serve. God gave me a servant's heart. And so I chop wood and carry water and stay on the firing line. I want to thank the committee, man, for letting me be a part of this. I thank all of you for giving me another day's sobriety, and I thank my Heavenly Father for keeping me sober and get to experience this life. That's all I got. Peace.